0: Hello, all, and welcome back to Between the Cuffs. Today, we're going to be focusing on disability and kink and all the ways that they do and don't intersect each other. A lot of today's episode is going to be based around my own experience as a disabled kinkster, and it's something that I'm looking forward to opening up about because it's very important to me. And I think it's equally important to say that this is a hard subject for me to discuss. Just because it's something very prevalent in my life. But I think that that is a greater motivation for me to just kind of talk about it. Not just for the people who are listening to this, but also for myself. You know, I think that this project, uh, the podcast, is its a large overarching thing that I want to use to impact my community as well as myself. And keep the wheels of my brain turning. And I think t- today's today definitely going to do that. So how exactly does being disabled impact my kink life? I think that the answer to that question is going to be a bit long winded and I'm going to do my best to be concise about it, but it's hard. I mean, for me, it's hard, you know, and I I find myself constantly struggling to move or do simple activities, even just like accompanying one of my partners to the store uh, can be incredibly debilitating. And I find that I have to rest for hours afterwards just to recover enough to do something else. And with all of that in mind, it's harder even to imagine myself going out to a kink party because that's hours of, of standing and, and moving and it really sucks. And that being said, I, I suppose it fuels me to push harder. Now with that said, I suppose it just fuels me to push harder and continue participating in the community but it's still hard. I'd say that, for me, being disabled holds a little bit less prominence within my kink identity as a whole than perhaps my trans identity, but it's still something that stands very strongly at the forefront. I find that, being disabled, I have to be much more of a pre-planner when it comes to my scenes. And this could be the negotiation phase, this could be the storyboarding, trying to figure out exactly what I want to do but the point is is that I have to be more of a pre-planner because I'm at a higher rich I'm at a higher risk of being injured. I'm much more interested in being hurt than I am in being harmed. And that's a very critical distinction to note here, because I will use those two words a bit more frequently going forward now. And hurt I identify as pain in a consensual setting, and harm I identify as detrimental pain, something that could lead to injury, something that is an injury, something non-consensual, etc. I have had to step away from as much activity that I would usually have within my local community because it's just hard for me to even get in the building. You know, I use mobility aids in my personal life because I just have a hard time walking. You know, I, I physically can't stand or maneuver myself for the few hours that the party would last. And the dungeon that I go to isn't wheelchair accessible. I use a cane now and then, but that cane is usually coming out when my left knee is locked up and can't bend when I'm walking. And aside from those instances, it doesn't do me any good, so it wouldn't help me to bring it to a party, you know? I think that me continuing to create art on my own as an artist or with other artists and collaborators alike definitely helps me to feel like I'm retaining my individualism as a kink player, but it really is... (laughs) It's like a double-sided coin, you know, because simultaneously it hurts my heart that that is what my kink life has come to. You know, it's it's the severe reduction that I've had to make over this year comparative to the rest of my career. I've also noticed that over the last half a year or more, I've been slowly losing potential play partners because I've been much more out and accepting of my disabilities than I have been for the last few years. A lot of people... They just, they see that word and they don't want to engage. And whether they do or not, that's at least how it's coming across to me, you know. And I'd say that 80% of my kink life is currently revolving around my art or my collaborative efforts. And so without that, I would be looking at 20% of my usual capacity. And that's really hard to think about. I definitely think that there are some good things that come out of being disabled and kinky you know I think there's an overlap there as far as my own life goes you know I feel a very strong urge to combat the horrible pain that I'm in all the time with new and unique and equally horrible pain just in a consensual setting where I have that power I think that being able to consciously choose masochism with such perverted and and plainly fucked up ways helps me to feel like I'm actually the one controlling my body Not just like I'm being stuck on autopilot that my brain has put me into, you know. I also think that learning how to adapt my body to play has been a really critical skill that I've gained over those last couple years. And that's something that I'll dive a little further into in a couple of minutes. You know, I feel like the conscious mindfulness has made me a better player. And not just for myself, but also for the people who I engage with, whether they're disabled or not. I feel like I'm consciously paying attention to a little more subtleties than I have before. And I feel like I'm being more mindful when in my scenes. And that's not to say that I am not mindful already or haven't been mindful. I think it's just an uptick. And I definitely think that that's good. You know, I I definitely welcome improvement. I always want to be bettering my practice and bettering myself as a player Because it doesn't just impact me, you know, it impacts anyone else that I engage with and the people they engage with, you know. Throughout all of this mindfulness, I feel as though I've gotten a little closer in touch with myself as a human and a being. And I'm learning a little more about what I need from other people that I'm engaging with. Over the last few years, these couples specifically, I've been learning a little more about being trans in a community that's not very queer ran I'm still doing this disability stuff, but I think it's interesting that I've just been learning nonstop since I started. I think that that's good to acknowledge because we should all view everything we do in life as a learning experience, you know? Now, I want to jump a little bit deeper into the concept of mindfulness and disability. So, how is it that my kink practice is allowing me to redefine my own limitations? You know, in another episode, I had brought up that when I'm in scene, my chronic pain gets switched off, for lack of a better word, and am able to be fully present in that moment that I'm creating. And I think that that has been the most significant factor for me coming out of my disabled kink life. Being kinky just makes me feel fucking strong. You know, receiving pain makes me feel strong. Subjecting myself to extreme discomfort makes me feel powerful beyond belief. Most of the days in my personal life, I feel very weak and helpless without power or autonomy over myself in these conditions. And I find myself constantly needing assistance or modifications to the life that I live just to be able to stay in it. And I think, again, this is another one of those moments where I get to say fuck you to whatever capacity I've limited, and it feels fantastic. I think a big thing that comes into play with that is me utilizing film. And this can be whether I'm recording like a video scene or just taking pictures, but there's something about seeing the tangible proof, you know, indisputable evidence that I did something this challenging really does something positive for me, both in the body and the mind. I feel like it affirms me and seeing these pictures, it's like that me in the pictures showing me how strong I actually am. I just have to choose to be that strong. So, of course, I do choose to be that strong, you know, and I get to do it within kink, which is something I really love. I feel like Polaroids have been the most helpful for me with my art. I just, as a queer trans person, they're very validating, and that's a very huge form of expression for me. And then it definitely translates into my kink practice. You know, I think that being able to hold that film instantly after a scene or during a scene is very beneficial to my practice. I'm also just a huge fan of instant film. You know, I have a few Polaroid cameras and I use them pretty thoroughly when I create art. I I, I take a ton of Polaroids. I'm slowly filling up a large photo album as I speak and I'm doing it in volumes because I have a larger Polaroid project to accompany my practice, but we don't really need to get into that right now. I feel like the two things that make me feel the strongest in the eyes of my disability and those limitations would be rope suspension and edge play. And in a little bit, I can get into how I'm adapting my play to be safe and not harm myself with a much higher risk profile in mind and, you know, a much more damaged body in mind. But I just want to focus on the acts themselves first. So plainly speaking, rope suspension can be and is challenging. I know that there are a lot of rope tops that focus more on decorative rope and create a milder tying experience to get a softer scene with beautiful poses and they use specific rope materials that don't hurt as much to be in. And I know there are a lot of rope tops who choose to approach rope with more sadomasochism than that. And they still create these beautiful poses, but they're stressful to maintain now. And then they use natural fiber to give a little bit more of a bite when being in the rope. And I definitely find myself more invested and interested in the latter. Now, if you've never seen rope suspension before, and it's of interest to you, I definitely encourage you to take some time and look it up. Uh, I think it's a really beautiful art practice. It's really unique. And it's really cool just what people have learned how to do over years and years and years of study with dried grass. You know, I think that's crazy that we can lift people out of out of the ground and into the sky with just dry grass. I think that's neat. And the sensation of being midair air even if it's just being a few inches up off the ground is, is mind blowing. You know, when, when else do you get to do that in your life? Personally, my favorite thing about suspension is, is getting inverted and inversion refers to having your head below your hips. So you're basically upside down, you know, it's a ton of fun and it's a very interesting challenge. And I don't really go upside down in my life other than those moments. You know, I, When's the last time that you've gotten to be fully upside down without support in the sense of like being held by somebody, you know, like or being mid-air? It's really cool, and it's challenging. I feel like rope bondage, let alone suspension, is basically putting your your body to a bunch of different tourniquets, and then you're playing against those tourniquets, and Masochistic rope can be constrictive and disorienting and painful distracting but the sensation is fantastic I feel like putting myself in the air shows me that I'm not actually trapped here on the ground even though I feel like I am a lot of the time and I feel like it also shows me how strong my body is when most of the time I feel like it's really weak and limited edge play is also something that plays a huge part in my mentality with disability and kink as far as my own limitations and their subsequent redefinition, I love to engage in blood play a lot. And recently I've been getting really into uh, water-based breath play, you know, and, and that can go between like head dunking or consensual drowning play. I've definitely been getting into it more so in the last few months than I have been in the last few years. Uh, and I, I really fucking love it. And, and both these concepts are very challenging on your body, but also your brain. And a lot of... Interesting processes can come up, both emotionally and mentally, when you're doing them. And for me, being able to just sit and control those sensations, I uh, I feel badass. You know, I, I think it's really cool. It's a really unique thing, being able to overpower my own brain, which is the literal embodiment of that mind over matter concept. And I wouldn't say that there's a high that I'm writing afterwards, but I'm definitely writing something, whatever it is. So with all these challenging forms of play I'm discussing that I have such an interest in, I obviously have to be making adjustments to keep myself safe because they're higher risk profile activities. And I have to make more adjustments because I'm disabled and choose to do these things. I have to put in extra time and extra care because I have a higher risk of injury than some. And I'd love to give a couple examples of how I adjust those activities because I think that they can maybe provide a resource or just some interesting thoughts for others. And then I'd love to talk about some things that I do in my own spare time to make sure that I'm able to safely withstand this play. And you'll understand what I mean when we get there. I think a great place to start along these lines would be that punch bag scene. I know I very loosely talked about it, but if you don't remember, I was in a mechanic shop and I was handcuffed to an engine hoist and, and kind of on my tiptoes so I had low balance. My arms are above my head. I was used as a punching bag for 20 minutes. I, I took punches from a very strong person to my chest and breasts, to each side of my ribs in my stomach, uh, to my ass, and to all parts of my thighs. It was very challenging. And then at the end of the scene, I was forced onto my hands and knees with my arms cuffed above me, and I was sprayed down with a pressure hose. So at face value, that scene sounds like a lot, because it was a lot. And while my video seems much more polished because it's a video that I, I took time editing, I definitely wanted to share some of the off-camera things that helped me make this a reality, you know? I think the first thing is is the truth in that I came down from the hoist a few times, you know, the first place in my body that I started showing symptoms of HEDS in was my shoulders. I think they started subluxing and, and dislocating around 12 or 13. And it's been well over 10 years now, uh, since then. And I like, they just come out trying to put a seatbelt on as a passenger in a car or doing very simple activities. Like they just roll the fuck out. And so First of all, having your arms above your head like that, I don't consider that to be a long-term sustainable position. And by long-term in this, I mean, you know, ranging from an hour or more um, because you're reversing your blood flow from your arms down. And so it can cause circulation issues. uh, And depending on how much tension you're putting on that, if any, like for my example, I was putting tension because I was on tiptoes. I was trying to keep myself up and I was receiving impact, which was adding force and momentum into my body that I then had to adjust to that can cause some nerve issues if you're not looking out very carefully. So I think three times total during this 30 minute scene, I, um, I had to come off the hook and I had to, you know, rub my shoulders, make sure they were doing okay. I had to recirculate my hands and arms and, I definitely want to stress that that's not me being weak, and I don't think it should be viewed as such, and I don't think that making adjustments in your play should ever be viewed as weak. I think it was me being strong to choose the well-being of my body over trying to impress somebody or trying to create an expectation for myself or or just anything, really. I also think that doing those adjustments helped me through the full scene. You know, if I hadn't come down at least that first time and beyond, I wouldn't have been able to do the scene I would have had to stop now I also with those rib shots I want to highlight that that's a dangerous area to be punched in if it's new for you if it's new for your partner and it's just dangerous in general so when it comes to rib punching you have to know how to throw them correctly you know you have to know where to hit you have to know how much strength you can actually apply so there's a little bit of a force balance dynamic if you will because you're pulling the energy from those punches you know so you're not breaking ribs because like and a, a hospital trip is never on my okay list for a scene. And I think towards the end of those rib punches, I actually took one on the right side that was too hard, and I had to flag yellow uh, because I could feel that it just hit me the wrong way. And my ribs were bruised because of that. You know, I I was sporting some rib bruising for a couple weeks afterwards, and I had to speak up to avoid even further injury. And now bruised ribs with, with punching play is something anybody can get, But it's something that I have a higher predisposition to because my ribs dislocate themselves constantly. So I had to be very careful and make sure that I went in and and adjusted that as soon as I felt something wrong. And that's the difference between the hurt and the harm, right? Because I was being hurt and that was great. But then that one punch to the ribs was harm because it could come to an injury, which it did leave me with an injury. So it definitely had to stop that. I also had my mouth duct taped in that scene so in between takes of me coming off the hooks and everything we would take the duct tape off uh, so that way I was able to communicate properly so we definitely had to stop a few times and just adjust but I think that that's all the more impressive you know that I am so aware of my own threshold and know exactly how to approach what my body needs and if you've seen the video or if you've seen the pictures and if you haven't and you're interested, I definitely encourage you to check my social media out because it was a really fun scene. But you'll definitely understand a little more about why I'm stressing these points. Now to go back to rope suspension, I definitely have to be an extra conscious rope bottom in order for me to enjoy a scene fully. And so there's a few things that come along with that. I think the first thing is definitely proper stretching. And I would recommend that any rope bottom should stretch. It's a pretty common thing in the community. But for those of you who are more just kink curious or oriented or learning today, it's a very important thing to do. You definitely need to let your muscles get acclimated because they're about to be put through stressful positions. And if you don't stretch before your rope bondage, you are setting yourself up for failure in a way, in a sense of a way. Now I have to stretch extra because again, I have a lot of unstable joints, um, it's almost every joint at this point, actually, you know, and recently my my femur has been rotating a lot in my hip socket, so I definitely have to put extra attention into there and make sure everything is ready to go before I'm putting myself in stressful positions. And with that being said, another thing I have to do is maintain constant awareness of those joints. So some of you may be familiar with the term subspace, some of you may not. So subspace for just a concise definition is when you're being submissive or feeling submissive in an activity or a scene or a situation, sometimes you just kind of sub into what you're doing. So you get into a much more subby headspace and this can look like a lot of different things. So for me, I definitely, uh, my adrenaline goes up. So I hurt a little less with pain. Um, I get definitely hornier for the activities I'm doing, but not like for anything genital. Um, And now I'm also somebody who has a lot of experience with subspace. So I am very aware some people can slip into subspace and go completely nonverbal. And that's totally cool. I I used to do that when I was first getting started and I've done it a few times in between. But when I do activities like this, that's not an option for me because I if I go nonverbal and I injure myself, I can't communicate that properly. Or, for example, if I feel a seizure coming on and I'm nonverbal, I can't communicate that to my partner. And now I'm at a really high risk for danger. So when it comes to my subspace, I have to still be aware and still be present, like in the room, in the scene, in the situation. I constantly am checking in with my shoulders and my hips in my back where I had my surgery, uh, my ankles, my wrists. You know, I, I'm giving everything a once over now and then. And I'm also checking to make sure that my circulation is good uh, because if I have something subluxed or out of place, I am at a higher risk for danger or detriment when it comes to those circulation issues. And then another thing I have to do as a rope bottom is maintain consistent and immediate communication with my rope top. And so I've done a lot of rope suspension and I've definitely had a lot of poses that didn't work. And whether that didn't work immediately or in five minutes or in 50 I have to speak up immediately and I encourage everyone to speak up immediately because rope can never be a hundred percent safe. You know, there's always a danger to it. Again, you're playing with tourniquets, right? And so you have to be mindful because permanent nerve damage can happen during your play and it's, it's can definitely reshape your life. I know that sometimes nerve damage can just range from a few weeks to a few months, but it can also be permanent. And I just want to stress that you need to know the risks for the activity that you're going into. Now, I have to be a really great communicator because I can get injured so much faster than some. And I don't want that. You know, I'm never OK with going to the hospital because of a scene. I'm never OK with breaking something for a scene or or maintaining injury, which is why I speak up about them when they happen. Um, so when these poses come where I, my body can't sustain it, I tell my top right away and Being a good mid-scene negotiator is really important because in those moments I'm able to adjust the tie or come out of it completely and try something else and then continue with the scene as opposed to just shutting down and stopping the scene because something hurt. Now, I definitely encourage you that if you feel the need to stop something, you stop it. And I also encourage you to try learning how to mid-scene negotiate so that way you can continue your play if it feels right for you. You know? I also wanted to, like I said, discuss some things I do on my own that help me maintain these play activities, especially as somebody who's disabled. And I think these things are applicable to everyone, regardless of physicality, right? So the first thing is stretching. I definitely think that stretching consistently is really good for your body just in general, but it's also really great for BDSM practitioners. You can maintain your flexibility, which means that you can hold different poses for a little bit more of a sustainable period. And it just lets you check in with your body. You know, basic stretching shows you any tight areas that you're having. Um, So I just I think everyone's body should be loose, loosey goosey. You know, I also think that doing low impact exercise is really good. So I've had to stop going to the gym because my shoulders were were coming out uh, with every activity I was doing. And I definitely can't risk breaking such a critical part of my body just for some muscle. So I, I've personally had to switch to low-impact exercise. And I think that that's something that could be really helpful for everybody. So for me, low-impact exercise can be tai chi. It can be yoga. uh, It can be some more mindful activities like resistance band training or very light weight training at home. These are all really good. And yoga especially is something I focus on a lot because it's able to target a bunch of different muscle groups in my body all together and work everything as a unit, not just individual parts. I feel like we tend to break up us as an organism into all these different pieces, but we're we're all connected. It's all connected, you know? And it definitely allows me to withstand some of these play types longer. Definitely rope bondage. You have to maintain some sorts of physical strength to stay in rope longer because it's very challenging and demanding on your muscles. So low-impact exercise can help you maintain some of the stress that comes with bondage, or like maybe take on impact a little bit longer because you've got a little more of a foundation on your butt, or just really anything. Another thing I think is really important is your core strength. And I think that's something that a lot of us can do at home. Uh, Core strength plays into every other group in your body. I think core strength helps me be a rope bottom. It helps me suspend it helps me stay in bondage. It helps me respond to impact play, uh, holding myself up when I do water bondage or drowning play. It helps me when I'm in kind of fucky positions. You know, it's just very helpful. And you can go about that a few different ways. You know, like I said, I, I can't really use high weights, so I can't use like those big weight balls or anything like that. But I can do some core exercises where I pass like a yoga block across my body Right now, I'm still able to occasionally do some sit-ups and stuff like that if I'm very mindful about them, so I can do those too. You can also just kind of tuck your pelvis in and maintain good posture throughout the day. And by extension, that helps your core as well as helping your skeletal system. So those are definitely some things that I want to encourage you to look into and maybe adapt for your practice. And maybe saying these things will help you think of something else that works for your practice The whole point of everything I say and the whole point of this podcast is to help us all discover what works best for us, find what feels good and find what you like in your own BDSM practice. Now, I also don't just have physical disabilities. I also have a lot of neurological disabilities. You know, CPTSD definitely plays a huge part in my life and my seizure disorder definitely plays a huge part in my life. Now... Kind of sort of off the record, my neurologist said that they think I am a true epileptic and somebody who has PNES. (laughs) Haha, I know. But that stands for psychological non-epileptic seizures, and those would be a result of the CPTSD. So I have two pretty strong neurological conditions that impact me in a vanilla and a kink setting, and I wanted to kind of touch upon how I interact with that and how I make sure I'm playing safely. So the first thing I do with my mental practice is make sure I'm avoiding any known triggers of mine. And that is in reference to my play. So for example, I have been a victim of gun violence many times in my life. And so one of the things that I'm not comfortable with is playing with guns, whether they're fake or real. And knowing that about myself definitely allows me to cultivate a better, more safe practice for me and what I need. Uh, Some other known triggers of mine Include injections. So even though I'm into MedFet, I just have to make sure I stay away from like syringe injection play. That's not for me. I have an okay time dealing with needle tips and I love playing with needles, just not injections, you know? And these are all also things that I've spent years to unlock and countless therapy sessions to discover and work through and integrate into my life so I can talk about them healthily. And know how to let them impact my life correctly in a form of mindfulness you know so if you are somebody who has some trauma but you don't necessarily know what triggers could apply to you you know it it just takes time you know for me it, it took a lot of time because I had a lot to work through but take everything day by day and just be mindful so with that being said like how do you handle unknown triggers how do I handle unknown triggers well I think that It's definitely something to consider. You know, whenever you engage in kink, you have a risk of, like I've said before, uh, a mental reaction. Something could come up that you've never thought about before and it could affect you really strongly. And so I think it takes a lot of mindfulness as a human and mindfulness as a kink practitioner to handle those situations correctly. I've definitely been triggered before in rope and I'd love to give a good example of how I handled it and a bad example of how I've handled it just to show that I'm human and maybe provide a resource. So I was in bondage before and receiving some pain because I was doing some pain play and I don't know where I had a traumatic memory just kind of come up to the surface. I don't need to get into what it was in case I trigger somebody else on the program, which is definitely not uh, something I want to do, but it definitely affected me strongly. And I communicated that to my scene partner But I flagged the yellow because I didn't necessarily think I needed to stop, but I did want to check in about it. So I brought up the fact that it came out and I asked to work through it in the scene and include it in my practice. And so we continued playing and I was able to play through it and I cried and it was great. It was a very cathartic release of energy and I got a lot of that stagnant emotion out of me and it was a really beautiful scene. And then Afterwards I did some great aftercare and we just kind of moved on but I also included it because I felt it was appropriate. Now if I didn't think I could handle it at that moment I totally wouldn't have. So I don't want anyone to feel like that is the end all be all response to when that happens. And I want to get your brain thinking about what it would look like for you if you tried it. Now I've also been triggered poorly like I was saying and I have a very specific example in mind that I want to bring up because it happened recently. So I was in rope and I was blindfolded and I was in a new situation with new people in a very interesting situation. I was doing some very light rope work. Like it was more like for show for the other people, I think for the top than it was for me. It was very easy for me to handle. But as I was being brought down to the ground, I kind of heard something was happening and I wasn't really sure. And it wasn't until a little later that I realized that the people in the room had started sexually engaging with one another now at face value that might not seem like a problem however it is a problem if it hasn't been negotiated before so these people were total strangers to me and in a strange environment as far as nev- we've never met in in a, in a scene environment before so it was a little strange you know And now I'm definitely not one who is against seeing sexual activity or being around sexual activity. I go to dungeons and I'm familiar with that activity type, you know, however, I do feel like it's inappropriate if it hasn't been negotiated properly because consent applies to everyone who's in any given situation. And without consent, we can't have BDSM, right? It wasn't something on my table of discussion. It wasn't something that my top had talked to me about. It wasn't something that these people talked about. Now, these people were very new to the kink scene. They're still kind of learning how to interact with people like this, what sexual freedom and liberation looks like in this kind of setting. And I think that they just went about it poorly by not asking. Now, they might not have known. They might have known. I don't think that really matters. But what matters was is they did something incorrect. And so instead of me speaking up, my system just kind of shut down. And I got myself into a triggered headspace. And I just kind of went inward, you know, I was still in rope and I still couldn't see because I was blindfolded. So I felt very powerless in that situation. And instead of doing what might have been uncomfortable for them by asking it to stop and asking to be brought out of the rope immediately, I just kind of went along with it. And that was definitely a mistake on my part. You know, I, I suffered those consequences afterwards for sure. And I definitely wish I didn't to an extent. But I'm also glad I did because I learn more from fucking up than I do from succeeding. And I think that that statement is applicable to anyone. I think we learn the most when we are failing than when we're doing something right. And I thought it was important to include that because everybody makes mistakes sometimes. You know, I think all of us made a mistake in that situation. And it's important to hear that I don't place the blame on everyone but myself. You know, I think we were all responsible for that. I wanted to shift gears really quickly and kind of refocus our disability talk as we're coming to the close of the program today. I want to talk about some accessibility-based things in the community that I think personally we could improve. And this is as a precursor to an interview I'm going to be doing where I'm going a little bit deeper into disability in the kink community. So I kind of wanted to discuss it and get the ball rolling for y'all. So that way you can think about it and be prepared to bring it to our next discussion. But I definitely think that the kink community has some things it can improve. For example, at the very beginning of this episode, I was discussing my animosity towards a non-wheelchair accessible kink space. Wheelchairs definitely have been playing a huge role in my mobility and my freedom out and about in the world. They take a lot of stress and physical pain away from me. And I know they do for a lot of other people too. And it really sucks when our spaces aren't accessible by everybody. Because being in a wheelchair doesn't mean that you don't get to be kinky anymore. You know, there's a fucking ton of people who use mobility aids, myself included, and are some kinky, devious little fuckers. We really are. And I feel like we should be able to get in the building just the same as somebody who's a little bit more abled, Than we might be on a specific day. I definitely think that there's room for improvement for that. I think that getting to create art. Is something that helps. At least us as a disabled community. Because we're putting ourselves back out into the kink sphere. And showing the pride that comes along. With doing these things. Showing our internal resilience. And externalized resilience you know. I also feel like. We could be improving our knowledge with disabled participants. You know, I don't think that disability should keep people out of rope or out of bondage or away from impact or anything. And I feel like people who aren't educated about it tend to just steer the fuck clear because they're nervous or because they don't want to learn or because any of these fucking reasons, you know, I feel like we as a community could take a little bit more time to educate And learn how to engage as a whole. I think that a great way to do that would be doing a little bit more vocational classes at our our dungeons or at buildings and spaces in our local community to educate others. I understand that not everybody is going to choose to look up how disability plays into kink after this episode. In fact, maybe nobody will. And I think that's part of the problem. I can't necessarily blame anybody for not wanting to look things up because... Not everything is for us. However, I think that we should still have a place in the community, you know, and I think that that's a big reason why I wanted to talk about some of this stuff on the program. I think that's a big reason why I write some of the things I do for my Patreon is even if I can get this across to one person and and inspire them to do some research, that chain reaction that gets set off extends a lot further than it does to just me. And that's the whole point. I'm looking at long-term goals, not short-term. And so what do you think we could do to improve our community? You know, for those of us who are in the community and are players and are familiar with the space, what are some ways you think that we can make improvements to allow for greater inclusion? For people who are more just kink curious and who are listening along from home and trying to learn more about the community, What are some ways that you can become more of an open participant in allowing disability to intersect with kink in a healthy way? You know, what are some things that you can do to educate yourself to be better prepared to play with other people or even just to be a better educated person? I think those are all some important things to get rolling in your brain. So like I said, this is a precursor to a little bit more of like a 102 discussion on disability. In next week's episode, I'll be interviewing somebody from my home state, and we're going to be discussing a few different facets of our lives and our kink journeys. We're going to talk about disability, and we're going to talk about a few other topics, but I just wanted to get you thinking ahead of that interview. I'm definitely looking forward to getting to speak with them and learn a little bit more about the humans around me. I hope that these precursor episodes to interviews have been good for your your brain to engage with and help prepare you for some of the other topics that we dive into. I wanted to thank you for taking the time to listen to this today and continuing our group journey on this project. And as always, this has been what it looks like between the cuffs.